This is Marathon Training Academy, episode 437. Thanks to the Rebel White Mountains Marathon and Half. We're going to be there this year. We're really excited. It's going to be May 5th, 2024 in Conway, New Hampshire. The course runs down one of the most scenic highways in the United States. It's going to be fast and fun. Register at runrevel.com with the code MTA to get $10 off. The Revel White Mountains Marathon and Half. That's revel.com. Use the code MTA for $10 off. Welcome to the Marathon Training Academy podcast, where we inspire and empower you to go the distance. In this episode, we share tips on running a big city marathon, like one of the world marathon majors. Plus, we speak with an official charity partner of the Tokyo Marathon about literacy rates for kids and especially girls around the world. And don't forget, as an Academy member, you get access to all of our podcast episodes, training plans, courses, and more. Find out how to become a member over at Marathon Training Academy. Okay, lots to talk about on this episode. Uh, real quick, let's do a rundown of the U.S. Marathon Olympic Trials. I know this doesn't relate to everyone, you know, if you're not in the U.S., but it's pretty big weekend over here in Orlando. So, Angie, what went down at the Olympic Trials? Yeah, they were held on February 3rd, um, of course, 2024 this year. It was quite a warm day with temperatures getting around 70 degrees, causing some heat-related difficulties for many runners. This year, there was a prize purse totaling $600,000 that was distributed among the top 10 female and male finishers. So, for example, first place took $80,000, second place $65,000, third place $55,000, all the way down to 10th place getting $7,000. Of course, only three can uh, make the Olympic team for the men and the women. So a lot of pressure all comes down in this one race. Yeah, that's right. On the women's side of things, there were 173 women who qualified to run in the U.S. Olympic trials. But by race day, there were 165 women who started the race and 117 women ended up finishing. This year really featured the fastest collection of U.S. women's marathoners in history. In fact, the race was so fast, the top eight finishers would all have taken a spot to the Olympics in any previous marathon trials. All right. So who were the winners? Yeah, I think there were a few surprises this year for sure. Uh, The first place woman was Fiona O'Keefe. She finished in 2.22.10. This was her debut marathon, so she was definitely a dark horse. She ran the fastest U.S. Women's Olympic trials time. The previous best was by Shalane Flanagan. And Fiona O'Keefe is the first woman to win the trials in her debut marathon. Second place was Emily Sisson. She finished in 2.22.42. Of course, she currently holds the U.S. Women's Marathon record, and she ran in the 10,000 meters at the Tokyo Games. Third place was Dakota Lindworm. She finished in 2.25.31. And I thought it was interesting, the fourth place finisher, who is the alternate, was Jessica McLean, who finished in 2.25.46. She ran a four-minute personal best. She has no coach, no sponsor, and works full-time. And she basically will be going to Paris to compete if one of the other three withdraws. Essentially, she has to train like she's running in the Olympics with little chance of being able to do it. So kind of a unique situation. Fifth place was Sarah Hall, age 40, with a time of 2.26.06. And she actually set a new U.S. Masters marathon record. And this was her eighth Olympic trial since 2004. So she's a veteran as well. 
All right. So how about the men? Well, there were 227 men that were qualified to run in the trials. There ended up being 214 men who started the race and 150 who finished. First place was Connor Mance. He finished in 209.05, closely followed by Clayton Young in 209.06. They were actually teammates at Brigham Young University and our current training partners. And third place was Leonard Career in 209.57. He's an Army Staff Sergeant who competed in the 2016 Rio Olympics in the 10,000 meters. And at this point, Career is not a definite to run in the Paris Marathon because he must wait to see if the U.S. gets a third Olympic spot. That's not determined until the May 5th international rankings come out. Um, and fourth place, Elkana Kibet finished in 210.02. He bettered Abdi Abdiraman's existing men's master's American record by one second. So a little quick wrap up there of the Olympic trials. I'd like to give a quick shout out to a follower of the podcast named Jordan. Um, he's on Instagram at the American runner. He posted, it's been five years since my first marathon. He signed up for that just six days prior to the race. Uh, Anyway, he says, I had no clue what I was doing, so I took a crash course listening to every podcast I could from at Marathon Academy. He says, Angie and Trevor taught me all that I could learn in less than a week. (laughs) I may not have known what I was doing, but I knew one thing. I'd give it my best. The furthest I'd ever run was 11 miles. Sometimes you just have to go for it. Scare yourself and see what happens. And then he says, fast forward, in less than a week, I'll be running my 100-mile ultra at the Black Canyon Ultras. Can't wait. What a wild running journey it has been the past five years. You know, I think he also ran across the U.S. Wow. (laughs) That's amazing. (laughs) Yeah. You just never know what signing up for a marathon six days before it starts will do. And taking a crash course from us. (laughs) That really focused the mind. Well, that's, congratulations, Jordan. <laughs> that's how I feel going into Tokyo. Like my mind is focused now that we have like three weeks to go. <laughs> so we're talking about big city marathons in this episode. But before we jump into that, let's talk about a small town race in the beautiful mountains of New Hampshire. We're talking about the Revel White Mountains Marathon and Half I hope you can make it out and join us. We're going to be there, Angie and I, and Coach Nicole from our team. We're going to have a meetup after the race. It's May 5th is when the actual race date is. And Angie, what can we tell people about the Revel White Mountains? Well, like other Revel races, White Mountains is a downhill marathon in half. It runs down one of the most scenic highways in the United States, finishes in the charming town of Conway, New Hampshire. It's guaranteed to be fast, beautiful, and downhill. The Elevation drop for the marathon is 2,350 feet, and for the half marathon, it's 790 feet. So this could be a perfect opportunity for you to explore New England, and it's just two hours north of Boston. Of course, Revel comes through with big race perks like a luxurious medal, stylish moisture-wicking race shirts, and free photos, and a personalized race video. So you can see how you really look when you run. (laughs) (laughs) I love that all that's free. Exactly. They know how to put on a race and treat you right. So this is perfect for a first-time marathon or half, or if you're going for a PR. So you can register at runrevel.com. Use the code MTA for $10 off. Send us an email. Let us know if you're going to be there. Runrevel.com. Code MTA for $10 off. Well on my way, well on my way.
Okay, well, we're gonna share tips on running a big city marathon, like one of the world majors. So we'll start with that, the world majors. Um, according to the website from Abbott World Marathon Majors, more than 180,000 runners will compete in the six world majors this year. So these are the world marathon majors in order of how they appear on the calendar. And this will be the dates for this year. Tokyo Marathon, March 2nd. There's gonna be 36,000 runners, 1.6 million spectators, 10,000 volunteers. Angie and I are going to be there. It'll be our first time at the Tokyo Marathon. First time in Japan. We're excited. And man, it's coming up quick. Next is the Boston Marathon, April 15th. It's usually around 30,000 runners. And then there's London, April 28th with 35,000. Then there's Berlin, September 29th this year. Berlin usually has about 40,000. And there's usually records set here. The current women's marathon record was set last year by Tickets to Seifa. She ran 211.53. Okay, then next is Chicago, which will be October 13th, 45,000 runners. And there's also world records set here quite often. In fact, the current fastest marathon on an official course was run there last year by Kelvin Kiptum. He was only 35 seconds away from a two-hour marathon. And then, of course, there is the New York City Marathon, which will be November 3rd, 2024. It's the largest marathon in the world with 50,000 runners. Now, I don't think any of these have a half marathon. They usually have a separate half marathon at a different time of the year. Yep. So there are race weekends that are as big as these. Like we talked about the Mumbai marathon in the last episode, you know, like over 50,000 people. Uh, but if you look at the actual numbers of people that are just doing the marathon, it's down to like 9,000. A lot more people always run a half than they do the marathon for obvious reasons, right? <laughs> A lot of us have been at that halfway point thinking, I should have signed up for the half. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I think if Tokyo had a half, I would just do that. <laughs> <laughs> Keeps us honest. <laughs> I love half marathons. You may have also heard that the Sydney Marathon in Australia is on track to become the seventh world marathon major. Sydney Marathon has 40,000 participants, and it's undergoing right now a three-year candidacy period uh, to meet the qualifications to become one of the world majors. Couldn't really find what all it has to do. I mean, just basically put on a good organized event. Something else, I, I don't know how I missed this, but over on the World Marathon Majors website, it also says that the Cape Town Marathon is in candidacy status, as well as the Chengdu Marathon in China, which has 48,000 runners. Chengdu is the fourth most populous city in China with over 20 million inhabitants. So we have three potential future world marathon majors. So one big question is, what happens to the six-star program if more marathons are added to the majors? First of all, Angie, what is a six-star program? Well, if you run all of the six current world marathon majors, then you are a six-star finisher. You can, you know, sign up and get this special huge six-star medal at the completion of your sixth marathon. Yeah. So people that have that, they're like, hey, uh, we're going to add another one now and I got to go to this other place and <laughs> spend a ton of money to add another star. And this is what the website says, quote, there are no plans at present to make any changes to the six-star program. Any alterations will be communicated long before they take effect. <laughs> so in other words, they're going to kick that can down the road. Exactly. There will be future stars added, but we will. We'll tell you about it later. <laughs> All right. So let's talk about tips for running big city marathons. Tokyo, I looked it up. It's actually the largest city in the world right now. There are 37.4 million people in Tokyo, according to the BBC. For reference, New York City has 18 million. 
In terms of the largest cities in the world, after Tokyo, the next in line is Delhi in India with 29.3 million, then Shanghai with 26.3, Sao Paulo has 21.8, Mexico City 21.6, and Cairo 20.4. So when we say big city, uh, it's kind of relative you know, for us, well, for Angie, she grew up in Denton, Montana with like, what, 500 people? So 300. <laughs> going to Great Falls was a big city, right? <laughs> uh, we live in Carlisle, PA, which has, I don't know, like 20,000. So for us, going to Pittsburgh or going to Philadelphia feels like a big city. You know, Pittsburgh has 300,000 people. It has skyscrapers. It has that big city feel. So here's some of the big city races that we've done. Chicago, London, Berlin, Boston, St. Louis, Pittsburgh, Indianapolis, Philadelphia, Memphis, Nashville, Louisville, New Orleans, San Antonio, Munich, Cincinnati, Jacksonville, and the Marine Corps Marathon in Washington, D.C. So Angie, what are some tips that we can share with folks on this? Yeah, we gathered some tips. Some of them come from our awesome coaches. The first one is to study the course in advance. That was recommended by Coach Antonio. Um, And it's so true. It's really helpful to know the type of course that you'll be running, specifically things like if it's a loop course, point to point, out and back, the elevation gain or loss, the location of hills, especially major hills, turns or confusing sections, and where the aid stations are located. Yeah, we did get asked in our members group. uh, There's a member who asked, how many days do you get there before the race to get adjusted? And one reason why we do like to get there early, a couple days advance at least, is so that we can kind of get a feel for the course. Where's the starting line going to be? I don't want to find the starting line for the very first time, the morning of the race. Like, I want to know how to get there. Exactly. Takes the stress off. Some of the stress. (laughs) There's always stress, right, Angie? (laughs) Well, and that kind of goes into the second tip is to dial in your goals for the race. This is from Coach Henry, because your approach to running the marathon and even the days preceding it will be determined in part by if you have a PR or a time goal versus if you're running to have fun. So Trevor and I don't have any time goals in Tokyo other than, you know, to finish injury-free and under the time limit. But if we were going to Tokyo and we were trying to, you know, run a PR, it would be a whole different situation and you would approach it differently. Um, So if you have a time goal, you want to make sure that you don't do anything new the day before the marathon or day of the race and have a very specific pacing racing strategy. However, if your goal is to have fun and finish, you have more leeway in the way you approach the race. And Trevor, you alluded to this one. Number three is give yourself time. So arrive in the city with plenty of time to acclimate, especially with international travel. Don't plan on arriving the day before the race in case travel goes awry and since you will most likely be experiencing jet lag. So plan to have at least two days to acclimate and try to regulate your sleep, especially for those international races. Pack anything that helps you sleep better, such as an eye mask, sound machine, and your pillow. Shout out to my Lagoon Sleep Pillow. It's also advisable to schedule your race at the front end of your trip so that you don't have that pressure hanging over you longer and so that you don't wear yourself out doing tourist activities pre-race. And also hope that your luggage does not get lost, right? Because have you heard of people, Angie, who their running shoes were in their luggage and the luggage got lost? Yes. And that's another one of the tips that was suggested by Coach Athena. Know what to pack. So understand what you can travel with when it comes to fuel, hydration, your race kit. Have that in your carry-on bag if possible. You don't want to be missing your checked luggage that contains your running shoes, your race gear, and your nutrition. So Angie, what are some of the stuff that you like to pack? What kind of running-related stuff do you like to take? 
Well, in addition to my shoes, my running kit that I'll be wearing and my nutrition, I always include a lacrosse ball for massage. Um, It can be great to massage the bottoms of your feet and other areas. Maybe some kind of small recovery tool, compression socks, which can be really helpful, especially if you're traveling right after the race. I love my recovery sandals, definitely anti-chafing ointment and possibly some KT tape to tape up my sports bra line, which always chafes no matter what I put on. So, you know, as you kind of get used to know what you need for marathons, that will really inform what you pack and make sure that if you have like nutrition packets, let's say gels, you know, for the airlines, you may need to put them in your liquids compartment, you know, just depending on the regulations of the airlines. I did a marathon in the Italian Alps and at packet pickup, I forgot to grab safety pins. So I get back to the hotel it's race morning. I'm getting all my stuff gathered up and I'm putting my bib on my shirt and I'm like, Oh man, I have no safety pins. (laughs) Pretty important. Tiny little thing that matters a lot. So I went downstairs to the front desk of the hotel and they didn't speak any English and up there they speak German, right? Cause it's used to be part of Austria. And I did not know the word for safety pin. I'm trying to explain what I wanted. And they're like, what, you know, looking at me (laughs) like pantomiming. Yeah. Like what is the German word for safety pin? I didn't have my phone on me to translate it. So, but I finally was able to communicate it and and get some from the front desk. But I think they only had like two to give me. (laughs) Two's all you need. (laughs) And so that's a good point. Like maybe stash some safety pins in your toiletry bag when you travel just to have in case they're not included with your race packet or you forgot to grab them. The next thing is to plan your nutrition and hydration strategy. It may be necessary to have familiar pre-race food and nutrition or hydration either brought with you or purchase before the race. You should really stick to tried and true foods the day before the marathon and the morning of the race. This is not the time to experiment. And be sure to stay well hydrated in the days before the marathon, especially if you're flying. Either try to practice in advance with the hydration and nutrition offered at the aid stations of the marathon, or make sure you bring your own. And bear in mind that some large city races don't allow hydration packs. And then there might be some races that require you to carry your own hydration system. So really read the rules of the race to make sure that you're prepared. You also want to time your pre-race nutrition carefully as many large races have long wait times before you start. For example, in marathons like Boston and New York City, you may have more than two hours of waiting in a holding area before your corral starts and having some food or something to drink with you can be valuable. Well, one thing that we're sure to pack to any marathon we go to or any trip we take is our AG1. It's our daily nutritional supplement. We use it every morning for optimal health. And if you've been confused about choosing the right supplement, AG1 removes the guesswork of trying to combine all the right supplements, something I'm never going to figure out anyway. You get it all in one tasty scoop, covering those nutritional bases, especially things that tend to get overlooked. That's right. Of course, we know that a lot of your immune strength comes from your gut health. And AG1 really has a lot of ingredients that address your gut health, the cutting edge, daily foundational nutrition that is super simple to take and to take with you when you have the travel packs. Give it a try. Uh, You can get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3K2 and five travel packs. Get that with your first order over at drinkag1.com slash mta. That's drinkag1.com slash MTA. The next tip um, from Coach Nicole is plan in advance. She says there's no such thing as too much advanced planning when it comes to 
getting to packet pickup, making a dinner reservation the night before, transportation to the start line, where you'll meet people post-race if you have people who will be there, and how you'll get back to your hotel or your transportation after the race. If you leave these things to chance, it may make for a very stressful experience. I know there's been plenty of big city marathons where trying to find you and or the boys after the race has been a bit stressful. (laughs) Yep. So yes, as much planning in advance as you can do, um, you will thank yourself later for sure. The next tip is to get there early. Get to the race starting area super early to allow for bag check, time to use the toilet, and extra tip, bring your own toilet paper because many large city marathons either run out of it or... Like Berlin, I don't even know if they had it in the first place. (laughs) And then make sure you have time to get into your assigned corral. At large marathons, you may end up walking a mile or more to get to the start line. So it's really important that you're there early so you're not feeling frantic. Also, it can get really cold waiting around for the marathon to begin. So be prepared with throwaway clothes and warm layers that you can discard before the race. Of course, make sure you discard them in the appropriate location. Having a long sleeve top, pants, or an old blanket and a pair of gloves can make a huge difference. And these point-to-point races where you get on a bus and they take you to the starting line, sometimes the bus drivers don't even know how to get there. (laughs) Yes, that is also (laughs) true. (laughs) Happened to Angie in Boston. Yeah, we got dropped off at a very inconvenient location, had to walk like two miles to the starting line. It was, yeah, it was nuts. But if you get there early, then you have time to, you know, go to plan B or plan C. So I think that's kind of flows into the tip of be early. The eighth tip is to be aware of your surroundings. This is especially during the race. Understand that the first few miles of a large marathon will most likely be very crowded And so be extra aware of your surroundings. It can be a bit challenging to run a PR on a crowded course because you have less ability to maneuver around people. And that's why it's so important to be in the correct corral. Also be aware of upcoming aid stations because you'll need to start moving over in advance to get your fluid and to avoid tripping other people. So kind of, you know, like look over your shoulder before you drastically make a lane change to make sure that you're not going to trip up someone else. Also, it can be a bit treacherous around aid stations due to discarded cups, nutrition wrappers, and sometimes banana peels, uh, which I slipped on a banana peel in Chicago. It was kind of the... um, Quintessential uh, cartoon slipping on a banana peel, isn't it? Yeah, it just definitely felt surreal. Like this actually happens in real life. I'm slipping on a banana peel. I flailed my arms to get my balance. So it's it's a thing. And also be aware that sections of the course with dense or tall buildings may make your GPS a bit inaccurate for a while. So don't freak out. Oh, runners would not do that. <laughs> I've never met a runner freak out about their GPS. <laughs> the cool thing is that you can go on um, sites like Marathon Guide and look at the specific race that you're going to be doing. And you can read reviews from people who often throw in all sorts of tips like we're talking about specific to that race, to the course, you know, to pre-race, to the aid stations, um, probably more information than you want to know. And that can be kind of helpful just so you have a heads up about how the race might proceed. And of course, it's really important to have fun afterward. And part of that is being prepared. So if you choose to do a gear or a bag check, make sure that you have warm, dry clothes and comfortable shoes or sandals to change into if you want to do that. I know personally that I get really chilled after I stop running 
and can start my teeth start jackhammering my body sees up and I really don't like to wear my sweaty socks and shoes longer than I have to so having a change of clothes can really make post-race way more enjoyable Um, enjoy the post-race food and beverages walk around for at least a few minutes after finishing Um, if you sit down right away you may find that you have stiffened up considerably and may have trouble getting up again and save the sightseeing and eating new foods for after the race. Um, I personally like to take time to shower and lay down for a while before going out to eat, but everyone is different in that. And then doing walking tours and hiking are excellent ways to recover in the days following the race. The more you move in the days after the marathon, the better your body's going to feel, the quicker you recover. And of course, you know, when it comes to food and drinks, it's going to taste so much better after the marathon because you'll be in celebration mode. We have found if it's possible, if you're going to be gone a week or two and kind of making a vacation out of it, do the marathon in the beginning. So fly there, get adjusted, a couple days, boom. Do your marathon and the rest of your time you have in the country or in the city, you can just relax and celebrate. And this marathon is not like ominous in the future hanging over you. Oh, I better not get injured or I better not walk too much because I've got a race coming up. Yeah, exactly. Okay, a couple more quick travel tips. Now I realize that there's probably a lot of you listening who are more seasoned travelers than we are. You travel for work. You know how to use credit card points and maximize all this stuff. And whenever I go somewhere, I don't mind couch surfing. And I've actually stayed with a lot of listeners to the podcast in various places. And I haven't been murdered yet, so... (laughs) (laughs) Boston. Boston jacks up the prices on Marathon Weekend. Like triple of what they normally are quadruple it's it's crazy and we've done that we've paid like 700 dollars a night to stay right there at the finish line and then other times we stay on the outskirts like out at logan airport and then we take the subway in and there's lots of runners that do that and you can stay for half the price uh, i remember when we did the chicago marathon we were definitely on a budget so instead of staying uh downtown chicago and paying five to six hundred dollars a night we stayed out at midway airport area and took the train in now, interestingly, Tokyo, the prices uh, seem to be reasonable. So we have a hotel near the Tokyo station where the finish line is. So I had to figure out if it was better to stay near the start line or the finish line. It seems that there's more interesting stuff for us to walk around and see near the finish line. Plus, if we have to travel back to the hotel after the marathon's over, I'd rather be closer to the hotel so I can get back and take a shower and rest my legs. And I've done the same thing at the Berlin Marathon, where I stayed at a hotel near the Hauptbahnhof, the central train station. You can walk to the start line and walk back from the finish line. Everything's real close. Plus, you can hop on the train, the U-Bahn or S-Bahn, and go anywhere you want to go. And one thing I've learned, too, is that it's so nice to get back to the hotel after a race and stay one more night. Not have to get out of there that exact same day. It is nice to be able to relax the rest of the evening and not have to worry about fighting traffic and driving all the way back home or wherever you're going. So that's how we like to go about it. So there are some tips for you on big city marathons. We have tried for years to get into the Tokyo Marathon through the lottery. So finally, we're getting a chance to go and we are doing this for charity, for a very important charity called Room to Read which is all about literacy, which is dear to our hearts because Angie and I love to read. Our house is full of books, probably too many books, (laughs) but we like them. We're going to die under a pile of books when we get old. Our kids will just have to move books out of the way to find us. (laughs) So the Tokyo Marathon partners with these charities that they have approved and vetted. And when the charity bibs open up, you go to the website and you can pick which charity you want to run for. Or actually apply for a bib through that charity because sometimes... 
there's more people who want bibs than the charity has numbers for. Yeah, I think that's always the case. So yeah, you actually apply to run for this charity and, and you do that by pledging You know how much money you can raise. There's usually a minimum that the charity asks. Uh, I think they pretty much take the highest pledges because I mean, why wouldn't they, right? They're, it's a charity. They want to bring in as much money as they can for their cause. So it was interesting to go through that process and see just how many people want to run Tokyo that as soon as the gates open, man, boom, folks from all over the world are applying for these charity bibs. There's only like 5,000 charities charity spots and way more than 5,000 people who want to do it. So that's what the experience is like. So we want to bring uh, two ladies from Room to Read on the show. We have Priyanka Guthaman, who lives in Singapore, and we have Ai Takumatsu, who lives in Tokyo. And of course, we're trying to raise money for them. So if you're hearing this and you feel led to make a donation, they would definitely appreciate it. We would definitely appreciate it as well. There's a link, boom, right there on your phone with the show notes to this episode where you can go to our MTA uh, Room to Read donation page. So here's our conversation with Room to Read about global literacy and the mission of empowering school-aged children, especially girls, across the globe with books and libraries. Okay, we're on the podcast now with Priyanka in Singapore and I in Japan. Welcome both of you to the MTA podcast. Thank you, Trevor. Really appreciate you having us. Um, we're very excited to have this opportunity and to have people joining us from around the world to run the Tokyo Marathon and just to support Room to Read. Well, reading is something that has been hugely impactful in my life, one of my favorite things to do. And so we just knew that this charity was such a perfect fit for us because of how literacy and reading just elevates everyone's life. So we'd like to kind of have you talk about what the mission of Room to Read is. So our mission is simple, but yet something that's truly powerful and truly needed in the world today. Um, so at Room to Read, we believe that world change starts with educated children. Through education, um, as an organization, we were looking to transform the lives of millions of children to basically create a world that's free from illiteracy and gender inequality. And what we want or sort of the world that we envision is where all children, um, irrespective of where they come from, um, the opportunities that they born into, um, have the room to read, to learn, to grow, um, and really use their skills to create positive change for themselves, for their families, um, and really their communities at large. That's great. And what's the story behind the charity? Who started it? And what was the, the story behind that? We were founded in 2000. The whole sort of like, you know, idea or the inspiration came together when our founder completed a trip to Nepal, where, yes, he witnessed extreme poverty, but also really a lack of educational resources and, and books and opportunities for the children uh, on that trek. So Room to Read was inspired from this trip and really his efforts to provide initially the children of Nepal uh, with engaging books and libraries. But we've grown and we've evolved quite a bit since then. And since our founding, Room to Read has now grown to benefit more than 39 million children 
We work in about 23 countries around the world. We we go into communities where they are experiencing deep educational, gender, economic inequities. Um, we often collaborate with governments and government schools because that's where we find the lack of resources and the training um, and just the support for children to be not sufficient, really. Um, and so we don't do this alone. We believe that everything has to have a shared solution. So we collaborate with governments, with partners on the ground, um, and really to deliver outcomes and positive outcomes for children who on their learning journey at scale, because we don't believe that reaching X number of children in one particular country is enough. Um, our ambition is to find a world that's free from illiteracy. And so that means in any country that we work in, our end goal is always to try and see how we can scale the program and how we can reach every child in that country to be able to like continue on their learning journey, but also complete it successfully. Can you give our listeners an idea of what the illiteracy rates are? Yes. Education is an inherent human right. Um, but unfortunately, there are more than 250 million children today who are not in school. And for us, that's just not acceptable. Um, our programs are right now obviously concentrated in Asia and Africa. But if you just look at the stats from around the world right now, um, globally, there are about 773 million people who cannot read. That's children and adults. And that number is greater than double the U.S. population. Two-thirds of those adults who cannot read are women. And so we also have a girls' education program where we support girls specifically in their secondary school years to stay in school first and to succeed in school to be able to navigate some really, really challenging and key life decisions which they have to make at a very early age. Another stat which is um, equally disheartening really is if you look at 10-year-olds around the world, they should be able to understand um, and read a simple text, a simple story. Right now, there are about, in every 10 children, seven in every 10 of these 10-year-olds cannot understand a simple text. And so that that really exacerbates the sort of like another you know, problem as children continue on their um, on their education journey. And this is all costing us quite a bit. Illiteracy alone cost the global economy more than $1 trillion each year. And so it, it's not just about sort of like, you know, creating um, an equal platform, but also understanding that this inequality is creating a cycle of poverty for millions of families. We've made great strides um, as a global community in a lot of things, but we still have a long way to go on education. And there are some really bright spots. I remember an email that I received from Room to Read. I think her name was um, Lena from Nepal. And she had read somewhere over 2,500 books in a year. And I just thought, what a wonderful, joyous thing, opening up the world to her. I just thought that was so special. <laughs> Absolutely. And, and these stories of Lena and like, you know, all of the different children that we hear every day, um, that's what keeps us going. Um, I think like, you know, as children are supported, they blossom into independent readers, they become lifelong learners. Um, and really, it's incredible how much of a change maker they can be in their communities. And so these are children who are literally breaking the cycle of illiteracy within their own families. 
the first generation learners as well. And so it's quite uplifting to see the amount of change or really the degree of change that you can create in one generation. So yes, absolutely. Lena and so many more children, they are the reason I and me and the rest of the Room to Read team continues to do this work every day. <laughs> can you give our listeners some examples of how you're able to reach those kids? Absolutely. Um, so on the on the literacy program, yes, we work on the curriculum. We work on the science of trying to help children learn how to read. You know, we're very data driven as well. And so if you look at our reading skills evaluation from around the world, we're consistently seeing that children in the program read more fluently than their peers. By the end of second grade, for instance, students are tested in the program's schools and they read twice as fast as their peers on average, and in some countries, nearly three times as fast. The comprehension is also important. So we make sure that like, you know, we're testing that regularly. And so when children are asked questions after sort of like going through the program cycle, on average, at least about 87% or more of children in our programs are able to give the correct answers. Science of reading is one thing, but what we want to do is also make sure that the magic of the love of reading continues um, throughout a child's life. And so Room to Read creates, in every school that we work in, we create beautiful libraries. Um, we're also a book publisher. Um, we have published more than 4,400 original and adapted children's titles. This is across 52 languages, um, local languages mainly. And to date, we have distributed more than 39 million books. And so this provides the students with, A, yes, knowing how to read the resources and the curriculum and the support from the teachers and librarians, but also make sure that there is a real foundation for literacy and really the joy of reading continues throughout their life. In any school, any library, the teachers and the librarians are at the heart of everything that is possible. So we focus a lot on teacher training um, and making sure that also the work that we have done to date since 2000, uh, the data that we have, the best practices that we have adopted is also integrated into national curriculums. Because at the end of the day, education really, the governments are the custodians of education. They can positively impact so many more children than just one room to read. So we advocate with governments to adopt these library standards, the curriculum, to make sure that the systems are in place, to make sure every child has the access to a, a child-friendly library, to the right life skills that they need. Um, the program really integrates different stakeholders around the child itself. We work a lot with parents, the school community, and also on the girls' education program, we support girls really to develop life skills like resilience, leadership, critical thinking. And again, these skills are essential for them to succeed in school, to negotiate key life decisions, really to succeed in life. It starts with staying in school. Um, it's incredible how every year that they stay in school sort of massively impacts their power to make their own life decisions and, and really take back the agency that they need to succeed in life. So again, on the girls' education program, we've got about 92% of our program participants go on to the next grade, uh, which is critical. We've supported more than 3.4 million girls to date. Uh, it's a long program, but a very um, fulfilling one. I is there anything that you wanted to add? We haven't brought you in yet to the conversation. 
So um, as Priyanka has just touched on the government education program aspect, I'd like to also share about the story of Lumi, um, the girl woman now, uh, 25 years old woman. Uh, she has grown up, but uh, she joined our girls education program in Laos when she was 10 years old. And that completely transformed her life. Um, she didn't know what to do, honestly, as she stated. But, you know, she was questioned and she was mentored again and again. And she found herself to want to become a teacher, a teacher of the Japanese language. And she ended up going to the National University in Laos, the top university, obviously, in the country. And um, received an excellent grade and received a scholarship to study in Japan. Um, she has been a tremendous, very impactful case uh, of what the education and our girls' education, education program can change the life of a girl like Looney. And I want to share a statement uh, from the Looney. Um, she stated that, I strongly believe that people cannot choose where they are born, but through education, they can choose what to achieve. So I would like you to understand that that is the transformation you are joining to change the life of, uh, especially the children like Bonnie. And by running for Room to Read, you can do that. So I want to share that. Thank you. Thank you. I'm sure it's so inspiring to see these children who have grown through the program, gone on, you know, and just be able to get life updates from them and, you know, realize that they're going to be giving back to their communities by through their education. So that is that is really inspiring. Yeah, the, the ripple effects are going to be huge. Oh, definitely. So it's not only about one child. Um, they are actually changing so many people's lives through, uh, you know, joining the society later on. So I want you to um, feel how that one seed of education can change the future forever. So let's talk about uh, the Tokyo Marathon. What's it like to be a charity partner of the Tokyo Marathon? And there are so many people that want to run that it usually fills up quick. That's right. So um, official lottery rate is 3% or less than 3%. So it's very competitive. And even for the charity spots, uh, they have only 5,000 bids. And we did receive very many inquiries and uh, bids uh, from the runners all around the world. And how much money do you hope to raise uh, from the charity runners this year? So this time we are aiming at um, raising for the amount of the education for 5,000 children across the world. And so far we have been raising the amount for 4,100 children to benefit with education. So we are on a very good track and we are definitely on the you know final push. And we are being very positive that we can achieve this, this finish line. Excellent. Give us an idea of what's the average donation that someone gives, what's the average dollar amount, and what can you typically do to help a child for that amount? It takes $50 um, to actually help a child each year on their learning journey, um, whether that sort of like, you know, goes towards supporting the book publishing program, whether it's looking at sort of the um, developing the curriculum. So this is an average around the world. Okay, so but that's for a whole year, you'll be able to help a child for $50. Yes, $50. Yes. That's a fantastic investment. Again, giving you an average. So it is as simple, like, you know, as low as that, where you can actually step in and like, you know, support a child in their learning journey through school. You look at the, on the girls' education side, um, every year on average, you can help a girl to continue her life skills program 
for one year, it costs like a dollar a day. For $365, you can support a girl for an entire year to attend her life skills programs where she gets mentored on really critical skills that she can develop. So it doesn't take a lot. The reason we are able to sort of like support children at these costs is because of many years of work and just being able to bring the cost of implementing these programs really low. Um, We brought down the cost of publishing a book to a dollar a book. So you raise $1,000, that means we can put 1,000 books out in the hands of children. So it doesn't take a lot. Can you give us an idea of what these books are like? Absolutely. They are they're colorful, they're joyful. Like, you know, we're typically talking about six-year-olds and seven-year-olds who are hard critics of our program. Like, you know, so... <laughs> We have them test our books and they rip it apart and then we go back and sort of like, you know, bring back, you know, a better version of like what we've started with. So, yes, the books have pictures, illustrations. We work with really local authors and illustrators in every country who can not just reflect the child's um, community and their traditions, but also, like I said, we publish only in local languages because it's important for that child to really have those books as windows and mirrors, really, a window into the world and also a mirror of their own life. Um, Mm. You can look at some of these books. So we have put a lot of our titles, more than 2,400 titles, on what is called Literacy Cloud. So it's Room to Read's Literacy Cloud. And so if you go look it up, um, any child around the world, not just children in our program, can access these books. You have people who done read alouds and so you know there are teachers parents like just people from around the world who've done it so yeah encourage everybody to go and check out some of these books great we're so looking forward to being in tokyo thank you for this amazing opportunity to run for the charity room to read such a a noble cause and cause that's dear to our hearts as as readers people that love books ourselves (laughs) and our kids they used to love books but then they got phones and now they (laughs) they can't they can't be pried away from their phones. <laughs> they bred hundreds of books, though, when they That's were true. young. <laughs> They're all teenagers now, so it's a mixed bag. But it was really inspiring talking to both of you. Thank you so much. I, did you have something else? Yeah, so um, we will be uh, surely joining the 2025 races and on too. So if your listeners are interested in running Look at Rockbon. Um, please let us know ahead so that we can, you know, share information how the uh, recruitment, recruitment process will be going ahead. So please email us um, at japan at rimtoread.com. Thank you so much. All right. You both are starting your day. You're ahead of us. So <laughs> we're ending our day. You're starting yours. So have a great day. And I will uh, we'll see you in Tokyo. Thank you so so much. We're looking forward to seeing you in Japan. Thank you. Hey, you made it to the end of the episode. Thank you so much for being a listener. We appreciate you. All the links that were mentioned in this episode will be right there in the show notes on your phone. And if you do decide to make a donation to Room to Read, like they mentioned, uh, only $50 will put reading materials in the hands of a student for a whole year. So what an awesome thing. If we can help you in your marathon training, send us an email anytime or a message. You can find us at marathontrainingacademy.com. We have a contact page over there. We'd love to talk to you about your goals. So until next time, stay classy. And remember, you have what it takes to run a marathon and change your life.
Well on my way, well on my way.